0: Thank you so much, and good morning. So wonderful to be with you as we've gathered together to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those that are joining with us online right now, I hope you sense the warmth of God's love. We're going to be opening up our Bibles, hope you're opening yours as well, and we're going to be making our way back to the book of Acts. We took a little break during the course of the Easter season, and now we return, and what I'd like to do is to, for a refresher, offer one per particular point to be able to consider together and it's that where we ended up a couple weeks ago in the book of Acts Paul is being held in custody seems as though things are not quite going right God breaks into his night he has a way of doing that you know and as God breaks into his night what we found in verse 11 were these words Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God is about to work out a plan to fulfill his promise, but as he does so, and we're going to be looking at this promise and how it unfolds in this passage of scripture this morning, when you and I are exploring the promises of God that are found in the scriptures, Typically, what you will find is that they come in one of three categories. There are, first of all, what I will call particular promises. Promises that are given to an individual, such as in today's passage, where the promise was given in particular to the Apostle Paul. Second of all, there are promises that are given to the nation of Israel. Particular promises for them as well, that will eventually come to full fruition in that final day. Third, there are what I will call general promises that are given to all who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Our challenge when we're reading the Bible is to determine which of those three categories am I dealing with at this particular point in time, and if I'm dealing with a promise that is given to a particular individual, such as in this case, the Apostle Paul, what are the transferable principles that I can use to apply to my own life situation? This is how we handle the various promises that are found in the Bible. What I want you to see at this point is that Paul is being held in captivity. He's in custody. And the night must seem very long. Maybe your nights seem very long as well. And in the darkness of your night, what I want you to do is to allow for the words of God to break in. Speak to your mind. Speak to your heart. In Paul's particular case, What God said to him was, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So I'm going to begin reading now in verse 12, and I want you to see and contrast, if you will, what was just uttered in verse 11 with what now begins to take place in verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they had killed Paul. There had been more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food, till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you. As though you were going to determine his case, more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes comes near. Now, isn't this like God? Look what comes next. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him, brought him to the tribune, and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, for he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring down Paul, So what I want to do now with you this morning is that we are about to contrast what God is doing for Paul with what these opponents to God's will are doing against Paul and see how all this works itself out as we look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, you know our needs. You know the struggles we face at night. We realize that there's been a fair amount of illness in the church family over the course of these days. Thank you for those that have stepped in this morning to fill in where others were supposed to be. Put your hand upon those, Father, that have been ill, and I pray, Lord, that those that have stepped forward to make a difference this morning feel how greatly they are being used by you, and we praise you and thank you for that. Now, Father, as we've gathered together like this in these various services, you know the needs of the hour. You know what keeps a person awake at night. You know the unbelief that settles into the heart. You see the ways in which unbelief is attempting to make its way forward, and you work with a believer, advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're sovereign over all things all events, all people for all times. We give you praise. And so, Father, as we're exploring these words together and we're thinking seriously about what matters most in life, what we're praying once again is that you would warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only, And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a look at what appears on the screen. This is a model of the setting in which the Apostle Paul has now been incarcerated. It's known as the Fortress Antonia. It housed a permanent Roman garrison of about 600 men. And its tower guards would readily yet Quick notice, make their way down the steps and into the temple courts. Paul has been arrested. He is now in Roman custody, and his Jewish opponents now are trying to find ways in order to be able to attack him. God has just, through a promise delivered the night before, made a very powerful statement to the Apostle Paul Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. It's a promise. William Carey must share these words. He said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. And this morning, if it seems as though your future doesn't look terribly bright what I want you to do now is to cling to the promises of God found in God's word and see how they apply directly to your life situation. Because if you feel as though at this point you are restrained, you are limited, maybe not physically to the degree in which the Apostle Paul is, but somehow, shape, or form, it seems as though there are restraints being placed upon your life, then watch very carefully how the sovereign God is at work here And how God is going to use his promise to make a difference, not only through Paul, but for your sake and my sake as well. Key word this morning is the word usages. And what I'm going to do is to draw out three significant usages at God's disposal. God uses in such a way to fulfill his promises for his glory and for our good. And the first comes out of verse 12 down through verse 15. We're going to put it this way. That when God makes a promise, number one, he can use opposing forces now, opposing forces, to achieve his purposes. Now, we just said the night before, God has spoken to the Apostle Paul in Roman custody and shared these words, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. It means then, Paul, you've got a future. I am giving you a future. Take courage. What I want you to do now is to contrast what you just saw in verse 11 with what unfolds in verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. You see the contrast? God is making a promise to Paul in verse 11 They are making an oath to God in verse 12. God is making a promise about securing Paul's life in verse 11. They are making an oath to God to kill Paul's life in verse 12. I want you to see and feel the tensions of the hour at this particular moment. Night and day, an oath on one hand, a promise on the other hand. One descending from the heavens to the earth, the other from earth to heavens. But what these oath keepers have in common is that they are highly religious people. This is an oath that they are uttering and making before God. They are unbelievers making oaths before God. They are religious unbelievers attempting to thwart the will of God. And so you and I now pick it up here and we're allowing that promise to drive us forward. In verse 12, it's day, as compared to the nighttime promise. The Jews made a plot, bound themselves by an oath. Now, the phrase used here, bound themselves, means literally anathematized themselves. In essence, they're saying, may it be unto us if we are unable to kill Paul. Kill us. If we can't kill Paul, you feel the tension, feel the contrast and feel the extremes of the moment now from night to day. Now, God has made a promise to Paul and now they're going to have to push back with their oath that they're neither going to eat nor drink till they have killed Paul, which leads me to think these guys are going to go hungry. There are going to be some growling stomachs through the course of this chapter. Because their oaths can't supersede God's promise. And when you're dealing with the promises of God, no event, politically, personally, medically, can supersede the promises of God. Verse 13. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy at this point. Now, revolutionary-minded Jews considered some assassinations, pious acts, as if these are God-blessed. And the thinking was, well, I can just make what's known as an atonement offering in the temple. Meanwhile, here we find the Antonia... Fortress looking down upon the precincts of the temple and watching how all of this is beginning to unfold and God is about to use some unbelieving Romans to be able to protect this believing Jew by the name of the Apostle Paul from unbelieving Jews in his midst. Isn't this incredible? There are more than 40 who made this conspiracy. You and I are told here. And we look at that. We think about that, and maybe some thoughts come to our minds. William Cooper once wrote these words. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill." He treasures up his bright designs and, get this, works his sovereign will. Later he would write, his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, Scan his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. And maybe this morning you're saying, but God, make it plain now. But you see, as we oftentimes said, God conceals enough. God conceals enough. And God reveals enough. God reveals enough to make our faith intelligent. God conceals enough to allow our faith to grow. And we find ourselves in the nows of life, caught in the today versus the tomorrow, the night versus the day, the reveal versus the conceal, and we're praying, God, make it plain, make it plain, but for some reason, today is not the day for making it plain. It might be the day after tomorrow. Here's Paul. And when he is lacking sufficient perspective with regard to the plot that's unfolding that he does not know about at this moment, though he can assume, he's got the promises of God to guide him through the days and the nights of his life, as do you. Even when your days seem so darkened that it appears to be like night. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And so what do they do at this point? they go to the chief priests and the elders. But you're going to notice with me that it does not say they went to the chief priests, elders, and scribes. Why? Because Paul had been a Pharisee. Scribes were Pharisees. Paul had challenged the Sanhedrin, and he challenged them with regard to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the Sadducees, who did not believe in the the resurrection, were on one side of the equation... Pharisees on the other side, and he had created a division among themselves. Sadducees are not happy at this point. So the conspirators intentionally leave the Pharisees out as they now come before the Sanhedrin. Never underestimate the opposition when it comes to the advancement of God's will. But God can use opposing forces even to achieve his his purposes in this world. And even if you feel this morning as though there is opposition to the advancement, that you are somehow, some way tied to, keep reading. They went to the chief priests and the elders. They left the Pharisees out of this one, in other words. Said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath. In other words, we have anathematized ourselves. Now, what I want you to see is that Luke, the physician, who is writing the book of Acts, he's going to use a lot of repetition and restatement in this chapter and he allows for things to escalate. So you feel as though we are going to be reaching a boiling point. This is how skilled he is, being directed by the Holy Spirit in his writings. And so they have told them uh, now that um, there's this oath, going to taste no food, so we've killed Paul. And there in verse 15, we're informed now, therefore, you, we need you to be co-conspirators. You, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring down to you as though you were going to determine his case exactly. In other words, create a sense of appearance. And we're ready to kill him before he comes near. In other words, they're appealing to their God to embrace their oath to, to, uh, to simply go against one of the commandments of the Scripture, to murder Paul, you see. And they're going to ask for God's blessing. Do you see the confusion here? Do you see the religious inconsistencies here? And then you're beginning to ponder what God is about to do. But there are no ifs in God's will. The center of his will is our safety. What if they do this? What if they do that? What if the conspirators succeed? And maybe you're grappling with a lot of what-ifs in your own personal life experience. When our, some of our family members were touring Greece, we, I was thinking about the story of Sparta. The Spartans lived in the southern part of Greece, area called Laconia. They were called lacones. Well, they were noted for their bravery, simple lifestyle, and brevity of words. People few words chose them carefully. Even today, if somebody says so and so is laconic, what they are saying is that that person is a person who who uses few words to communicate their their views. There was a man to the north named Philip of Macedon. His son would be Alexander the Great. And Philip of Macedon knew that in order to conquer all of Greece, he was going to have to subdue Sparta. And so he sent this message to them when his troops came to the very border of Greece. Listen for the ifs. If you do not submit at once, I will invade your country. If I invade... I will pillage and burn everything you hold dear. If I march into Laconia, I will level your great city to the ground. He waited for their answer. He got it. In a few days, the letter came. He opened the letter and found only one word written there. That word was if. If capitalized. There are no ifs in God's will. The center of his will is our safety. You see, the conspirators in verse 12 were filled with ifs. But God in his promise in verse 11 was conveying certainty. What I want to say to you this morning and if you're watching over the course of this week, is that when you feel as though all of life's circumstances are are contingent upon a series of ifs, if this happens, if he says this, if this goes right, then bear in mind that the center of God's will is where we find our security, where we find our safety, where there are no ifs when it comes to the sovereign plans of your God. Now, look carefully. When God makes a promise, number one, he can use opposing forces to achieve his purposes. But now, here's the second usage, it flows naturally out of verse 16 down through verse 22. That when God keeps a promise, number two, he can use unlikely people to achieve his purposes. Don't underestimate anybody even new acquaintances in the circles of connections that you have or are about to have. Watch what unfolds. You're up to verse 16 at this point. And in verse 16 you and I are told here that the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul now, this fortress was such that unless Paul had been not only accused of a crime, but furthermore it had been verified that he had been accused, uh, he is allowed visitors. So along comes his nephew. And he comes in to the barracks and he tells Paul about the conspiracy that's now unfolding. What does Paul do? In verse 17, what Paul is going to do at this point is to be able to say, go. He went into the barracks, told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, for he has something to say to you pause don't underestimate young people this is a child don't underestimate the ways in which god can position unlikely people to achieve his purposes in his time for his glory now the conspirators at this point probably underestimated this boy maybe assumed that he just wasn't following what they were saying Catching on to what they were doing. Maybe they were not even aware of his presence. But you see, God positioned him there. What I want to be able to say to you is that God has a way of uniquely positioning people in your life. Surprising times. Surprising settings. Surprising people. To achieve his purposes for his glory. And so now, here is Paul, and he seems to have established a very strong relationship with the Roman soldiers. Take this young man to the tribune. He has something to tell him, so he took him brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me, asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. So the tribune took him by the hand, which means we're dealing with a young boy at this point. Going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And here, in verse 20, he said, the Jews have agreed to take you to Paul, to to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire something more closely about about him. But do not be persuaded by them. You can almost picture this little boy commanding now, this Roman officer. Listen carefully to me. Do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him. Who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And they're getting hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. Now they're ready. And now he puts the burden upon the tribune at this point. The tribune that has listened carefully as Paul has communicated the story of Christ's resurrection. And must be processing the truths that Paul has established before the Sanhedrin, both Pharisees as well as Sadducees. But we've got now a Roman who's been listening to the gospel. And now he's going to have to determine what do I do with this information pertaining to these conspirators? They're ready. And now this little boy puts the burden on this soldier, waiting for your consent. That's your God. What happens? The tribune dismissed the young man charging him, tell no one that you've informed me of these things. My mind goes back to the story of Catherine Booth. It's a little girl. There was a man who had been falsely accused of a crime. who was being led to prison through town. And the crowds out on the streets, they found opportunity to amuse themselves, so they began to throw tomatoes and all sorts of things in his direction. She broke away, took the individual, the man by the hand, and walked with him to the prison. And we are told in the biography that the crowds became quiet, overtaken by her courage, And she resolutely took him by the hand and led him forward. Now, here's what God is doing at this point. He's using unlikely people to accomplish his purposes for his glory. Is he doing that in your life right now? Don't underestimate anybody, anybody among your acquaintances. Now, you're dealing with the promises of God. When God makes a promise... He can use opposing forces to achieve his purposes. Second of all, he can use unlikely people to achieve his purposes. But now thirdly, he can use governmental leaders to achieve his purposes. As it unfolds now in verse 23, he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready. Get ready now. You're up to verse 23. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, which means about 9 o'clock at night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride. Paul has experienced a lot of physical abuse at this point. It's going to be very challenging for him to ride. He's gone through extreme experiences in in his captivity. To ride, bring him safely to Felix the governor, and so a letter is about to be written. He's about to be taken by nighttime to Caesarea. And I thought about that. The nighttime experiences are extraordinary stories throughout the course of time. It's the way in which incredible adventures um, are penned. One happened during, during the Revolutionary War, about two months after July 1776, signing of the Declaration of Independence a story about George Washington. Well, here are the Patriots. They're in the region of New York. 9,000 Americans are pinned in against the East River. The British General, Sir William Howe, is settled in for a siege. What does Washington do? We are told that he ordered his men to round up all the flat-bottomed boats they could find. And in drenching rains that fell on the night of August 29th, He used his hastily assembled flotilla to silently ferry unit after unit after unit after unit across the river to the safety of Manhattan. And by morning time, as the fog lifted, the British realized what had happened. 9,000 colonists had slipped away in the course of the night with most of their equipment and artillery. As one historian put it, in the history of warfare, I do not recollect a more fortunate retreat. Watch what is about to happen. A letter is written, Claudius, Claudius Lysias. To His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. Now, what I want you to bear in mind now is that this tribune is really, uh, he's really into himself. He's gonna use the word I repeatedly, loves that pronoun. Circle it. Ponder it. Reflect on it. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers, rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Hey, reality check at this point. He assumed all along that he was not a Roman citizen, and was ready to have him flogged until he was informed that he was. Read on. Deserving to know the charge which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I can imagine the little boy saying at this point, hey, do I get any credit here? I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, charged with, with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there was to be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against me. And I paused, I, I took a step back and said, you know what? The sovereign God can even use self-centered people to achieve his purposes. God can even use a self-centered, unbelieving individual to achieve his purposes. Do you remember the stories, of course? There was Herod. There was Pontius Pilate. In, furthermore, comes to the story Judas the Iscariot, all of whom are unbelievers, of course. Yet God has sovereign purposes because of a promise and a plan that had been established in, in centuries past had already put into account all these factors and brought Jesus Christ to the cross, who would die in your place and my place where it says he used secular forces to achieve his his spiritual purposes for you and for me, for our eternal benefit. That's your sovereign God. So now when you are confronted with something in your life circumstance where you are saying, "I, I just simply need this, this, and this to take place, and these people to be part of in order for what I'm hoping for to produce good results. Bear in mind that God is much wiser than that, more capable than that, and He is not bound by our ifs. There are no ifs in God's sovereign plan, the center of His will is our safety. He can use opposing forces to achieve his purposes. He can use unlikely people to achieve his purposes. My word, he can use governmental leaders to achieve his purposes, as he did with Pontius Pilate, as he did with Herod. And so now we come to the end, and this man is extraordinarily into himself, isn't he? And you might be prone to distance yourself from people who are just so into themselves, but have you considered that God might even sovereignly be using them as part of the story? To be able to achieve purposes that you nor I can fully fathom at this moment? But then, then, you keep your eye on the text. You reflect upon what's here. You're examining now what Luke wants to be able to stress to you and to me. And so now, the letter's penned. The soldiers now are going to have to march through the night. Soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul, brought him by night to Antipetus. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. And we need to pause and be able to say, okay, I need to get my bearings. Where are we? Where was he? Where are they headed? Here's a map that appears on the screen. Here's Paul being sent to Caesarea. And Antipatris was a place now that was a high favorite of, the, of, of Herod. And this is where barracks were established, where long marches could rest during the night. And furthermore, if you want to see the fortress, here it comes our way, it's Antipatris. And there you have it now. Remains of where the Apostle Paul would have been. You're back to the text. You're up to verse 33. God is sovereignly using these unbelievers now to achieve his purpose of taking the Apostle Paul who loves Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior to be able to declare even in Rome the good news that Jesus has died for our sins and raised on the third day. So when they had come to Caesarea, delivered the letter, the letter to the governor, presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. This was normal legal procedure. A governor wants to know, is this in his jurisdiction or is it not? When he finds out that the Apostle Paul is from Cilicia, which you can see there right in this account, in verse 32, rather 34, he then realizes it's his responsibility now, And so what God in his sovereign purposes is doing is he is laying responsibility upon an unbelieving governor to achieve the purposes of the Apostle Paul's safety so that the good news of Jesus Christ can go out. Is this extraordinary or is this extraordinary? Did I even give you an option? Verse 35. He said, I'll give you a hearing. When your accusers arrive, And now the ball is on the accuser's court. And they're going to have to, with those grumbling stomachs, make all their way now to Caesarea. And as they do so, they're going to have to formulate a well-developed accusation that will cause the governor to listen to what they have to say. Meanwhile, he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And you say, where's that guy? Well, if you make your way to Israel, check out Caesarea with me. As you check out Caesarea, look at what appears on the screen at this point. And what appears on the screen at this point is Caesarea jets right out into the Mediterranean and as it jets out right into the Mediterranean, you're going to want to walk around the places where the Apostle Paul would have been, and you make your way to what's known as Herod's Promontory, and you make your way there, and there are the remains that Paul, where Paul was held in captivity in verse 35, you are saying even to this day, God is making a visible verbal statement to the fact that he is sovereign. There are no ifs in his plan. The center of his will is our safety, and he is a promise keeper. And that's why you go back to what William Carey uttered. The future is as bright as the promises of God and people. If yesterday was dark, Claim the promises. Daytime's coming. Let's stand together. So now, Father, thanking you for who you are. Thanking you for how you work. Thanking you for being the sovereign God. Where we tend to say, if I do this, and if she does that, and if they listen, and if they intervene, and we have set up a series of ifs, we need to go back to the nighttime hour where the Apostle Paul heard the words of his Lord. Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And rather than setting up a series of F's, I pray we will cling to and claim the promises of God. And bring daylight into the darkness. And for this, Father, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.